Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And Tech Stuff listener Steven asked me a long time ago if I could do an episode or two about the company AMD. And it's been a long time, Steven, but now I'm getting to that episode. So today we're going to learn about AMD, where it came from, and its role in the tech industry in general, because it's a pretty interesting story. And I knew bits and pieces of it, but like any subject for tech stuff, as I dive into the research, I learn way more than I had ever learned before, and I end up going down lots of rabbit holes. And of course, to understand the history of AMD, We'll need to talk about a couple of other companies first as they would lay the ground for AMD and a couple of other really big organizations in the microchip industry. And at the center of this prehistory for AMD was William Shockley. Now, I've talked about Shockley a few times in past episodes of Tech Stuff. He was, without a doubt, a brilliant engineer, 
though in other ways he was also a deeply flawed human being who harbored some truly horrible traits. And you might think that such a comment isn't really germane to the discussion of technology, but as it turns out, Shockley's personality plays just as important a role in the emergence of AMD as his experimental work did. Now, Shockley worked at Bell Labs, specifically in their solid-state physics research department, and he would play an important part in the development of the transistor, which was an alternative to the vacuum tube technology that had come before and had proved to be a limitation on technology in general, and electronics in particular. So, hey, what the heck do vacuum tubes do, and what do transistors do? What is the big deal with them? Well, vacuum tubes are also known as thermionic tubes, and they look a lot like light bulbs. They are glass with a filament inside of them, and they work on the principle that if you add energy to a metal, as in if you heat up that metal, the energy will cause the metal to eject electrons. And you probably remember this from science classes. Electrons inhabit an energy level orbit around the nucleus of an atom. And if you pour energy into that atom, it will boost the electron to higher energy level orbits. And if you pour in enough energy, you'll cause the electron to leave its atom entirely. John Ambrose Fleming would build the first vacuum tube-like device, which he called an oscillation valve, way back in 1904. His device had two electrodes, and that would be our good old buddies, the cathode and the anode. The cathode is the negatively charged electrode and is thus the source for electrons flowing through a system. The anode is the positively charged electrode, and it accepts electrons. Though we also need to remember that current direction is traditionally thought of as the direction of the flow of positive charge. So in other words, the flow of current is actually in the opposite direction of the electron movement, but that's really Ben Franklin's fault. We'll just skip it for now. Fleming demonstrated that by heating the cathode, which is at one end of an enclosed glass tube uh, inside of which Fleming had induced a vacuum, so there was a vacuum inside the tube, when you heated up the cathode, it would give off electrons, and those electrons could flow across the gap inside the tube between the cathode and the anode. They could leap through that vacuum. This type of component is called a diode because it only allows electrons to travel in one direction. And it's useful if you want to create a more complex device that works based on where electrons can and cannot go. Now, another smarty pants named Lee DeForest would add a third electrode to this system, and it's called a control grid. And the control grid can serve as both a control switch for how many electrons can travel from cathode to anode, as well as an amplifier. And you can influence the current flowing through the vacuum tube by controlling the amount of voltage going into the control grid itself. So with a tiny change of voltage to the control grid, you can have a larger change manifest itself through the overall circuit. This was a triode, and other variants would follow, making complex electronics possible. But while they were useful, vacuum tubes are also really large, and they give off a lot of heat too. By the 1940s, physicists were looking at an interesting category of materials that might serve as a substitute for these large, bulky, hot vacuum tubes. And that material category is called 
semiconductor material. And semiconductors are why we have the electronics of today in the form that they are in. Uh, That being said, vacuum tubes still are useful. They are still used in electronics today, particularly in things like music amps. But that's a discussion for a different episode. So what about a semiconductor? Because that is the bread and butter of companies like AMD. Well, a conductor at least for the purposes of this episode, is a material that allows for the passage of electrons through that material. It conducts electricity. The opposite type of material is called an insulator. That's material that resists the flow of electrons through it. Semiconductors have conductivity that lies between a conductor and an insulator. In addition, the conductivity of a metal decreases as the metal's temperature increases. Or another way to put it is that a metal's resistance to electricity increases as the temperature also increases. Semiconductors are actually the opposite. Their conductivity increases as temperature increases. There's one part of this picture that I need to really cover, and it's called doping. Now, doping is when you take an otherwise pure substance and you add small amounts of some other material to it. So it becomes impure because you no longer have one type of atom in that substance. With semiconductors, we typically talk about silicon, although that would actually come a little later in the development of the transistor. But pure silicon is an insulator. So if you have a bunch of silicon atoms, they form silicon crystals, and the crystals all bind perfectly with each other. They have perfect covalent bonds between the atoms. So that means there's no free electrons available to move around. So if you hit this stuff with a free electron, that free electron can't shake anything else loose. It's all kind of locked in. So it insulates electricity. But by adding small amounts of other materials, like arsenic, you can add in some free electrons. See, arsenic has some extra electron or an extra electron compared to silicon. So if arsenic is binding with silicon atoms, then you end up with this extra electron that's not bound to anything, and it will allow for some level of conductivity, all dependent upon how much arsenic per silicon you have in that mix. This would be called N-type doping because you're adding electrons uh, to the the actual material, and electrons have a negative charge, thus N-type doping. Or you could dope the silicon with something else, like boron or gallium, which would mean the crystal would actually have a few free spaces for electrons or holes. So instead of having these perfect covalent bonds that are tight all the way across the entire material, you would have these little holes that could accept an incoming electron. This is called P-type doping. By putting N-type and P-type silicon together, you can create a diode. And by adding a third layer, so that you either have NPN or a PNP sandwich of doped silicon, which honestly sounds pretty gross, you would get a transistor. And that's what Bell Labs was trying to create back in the late 1940s. Now, Shockley's research group was able to develop a transistor that could perform the same tasks in electronics as a vacuum tube. The first ones were very large and bulky and more like a proof of concept, but it quickly became apparent that this was going to be the future of electronics. And it was what would pave the way for miniaturization, ultimately leading to a new era in electronics. And I should also point out 
that there were other team members besides Shockley who were working on this, like John Bardeen and Walter Bretain and Gerald Pearson. They all made equally important contributions to make the transistor possible, but Shockley was frequently sourced as the uh, the head or the, the prime contributor, um, which is not entirely fair. Now, Shockley left Bell Labs and he went on to found his own company called Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory, and he hired many brilliant people to work for him. But his personality and his leadership style was so confrontational, it was demoralizing. He was described as being autocratic and paranoid, and he had a reputation for insulting his employees, building them way up early on, and then gradually undercutting them as the relationship would continue. And as you might imagine, this led to a pretty unhappy work environment. On a side note, Shockley would later espouse some truly terrible racist beliefs. And I feel it's important to note this because I don't believe in giving a free pass to someone simply because they made truly monumental contributions to the advancement of technology. We can't deny those contributions. They were absolutely important and they transformed our world. At the same time, we shouldn't ignore the negative aspects of someone's contributions either. We should take in the full picture. Okay, so. Shockley was in the running for world's worst boss, and it all came to a head in 1957, a little more than a year after Shockley had created the company in the first place. Eight employees, all engineers with PhDs, confronted a board member of Shockley Semiconductor named Arnold Beckman. And I'll have to do a full episode on Beckman at some point. He's another fascinating person. But they voiced their concerns to him, and Beckman heard them out, and he tried to kind of work out a compromise, but it was really too little too late. So the eight decided to leave the company, and Shockley would dub them the traitorous eight. Very dramatic. And they included Julius Blank, Victor Greenwich, uh, Jean Herney, uh, Gene Kleiner, Jay Last, Sheldon Roberts, and a certain Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce. These eight individuals approached a company called the Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation, and that company was actually looking to diversify into the burgeoning semiconductor business at the time. Robert Noyce and Gordon Moore were sort of leaders of this charge, and after coming to terms with Fairchild, including each of the engineers sinking $500 of their own money into the uh, Uh, the whole endeavor as an initial investment, they created a new division called Fairchild Semiconductor. Now, I've covered Fairchild in episodes, but granted, those episodes aired way back in 2013. The company did a lot of really big things in technology, including bringing the integrated circuit to market. Though I should mention that the engineers over at Texas Instruments had also independently created an integrated circuit. Fairchild was just really fast at getting that to consumers. Um, And by consumers, I really mean other businesses. This is sort of a business-to-business kind of enterprise. But Fairchild was also known for giving birth to other companies. And we sometimes call these other companies the Fairchildren. In 1968, after working at Fairchild for about a decade, Robert Noyce and Gordon Moore decided they were going to leave Fairchild and they were going to start their own company. And they called it Intel. Intel will pop in and out of our story of AMD as it was not just AMD's chief rival and still is, but also has a strangely collaborative 
relationship with AMD. So there's both competition and collaboration between the two companies. I'll explain more later. Now, in the wake of Noyce and Moore departing Fairchild, Fairchild Semiconductor reached out to a physicist over at Motorola named C. Lester Hogan, yet another person I'll have to do a full episode on in the future. And Fairchild offered Hogan, I will modestly call it a pretty darn sweet deal. That's underselling how crazy good this deal was for Hogan, but this is not an episode about Fairchild. So they wanted Hogan to come over to Fairchild to manage the semiconductor team. So Hogan brought seven Motorola executives with him, and they were collectively known as Hogan's Heroes. So we've got the traitorous eight, and we have Hogan's Heroes, and this makes the early days of Silicon Valley sound like some sort of Tarantino movie. Hogan, by the way, had previously worked under Shockley over at Bell Labs, so he had that in common with the traitorous eight, though he didn't join Shockley's semiconductor company when Shockley left Bell Labs. And Hogan's team had a very conservative management style, something that clashed with another Fairchild semiconductor employee, a guy named Walter Jeremiah Sanders III, or just Jerry Sanders. And Jerry Sanders will play a very important role in our story. I'll explain more in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Jerry Sanders grew up in the 1940s. He was raised by his grandparents after his parents essentially abandoned him. He grew up on the south side of Chicago, fairly rough part of Chicago at the time. And according to an article in SFGate and a few other sources, when he was 18 years old, he rushed to help a friend of his who was being attacked by a gang. And he himself was also beaten up. And he was beaten up so badly that he went into a coma for a few days and a priest actually administered last rites. But he recovered from that, and he was able to succeed despite his tough past. He enrolled in the University of Illinois and graduated with a degree in engineering. And he got hired by Fairchild to be a sales engineer and also a marketing manager. And he became known for being particularly successful in that regard. Uh, but then Noyce and Moore left, and Hogan and his heroes swooped in, and they changed things. And they effectively pushed Sanders aside. They essentially... They called it a promotion, but it really was a demotion. He went from a director of marketing to being sort of a vice president of marketing, and it was really seen as as more of a, let's get this guy out of the way. Uh, Sanders was 33 years old at the time. Now, Sanders and seven other Fairchild employees would end up leaving Fairchild Semiconductor to go and found a new organization. Now, According to most accounts, if you go and you start searching for history of AMD on the net, you're going to find a very similar story told over and over again. And the story goes that, that Jerry Sanders effectively led this charge and he got the team together to form this new company. So according to the history of semiconductor engineering, uh, Jack Gifford, who had become the head of computer marketing at Fairchild in early 1969, saw the writing on the wall when Hogan's heroes swept into the company. He had already been considering the possibility of starting his own analog circuit company, but he was young. He was just 28 years old at the time. And when he decided to take that leap, he found he couldn't get any financial backing for his business. His buddy Bruce Waterfall told him that the problem was the financiers thought Gifford was too young and inexperienced, and therefore he posed an investment risk. So Waterfall reportedly told Gifford that he needed to find someone older and more experienced whom the bankers would find more reassuring. And Jack then thought of Jerry Sanders, who, according to the book, had just left Fairchild himself after being pushed aside by Hogan. Sanders was apparently considering a new career, going into the recording business in Hollywood. And initially, he wasn't interested in Gifford's pitch to start a new analog circuit company. Sanders' response was effectively, I'll do it on two conditions. One, I have to be the president of the company. And two, it's not going to be an analog circuit company, but a digital circuit company. Gifford found himself without any real leverage, and he agreed. Now, getting the money also proved to be a little tricky. One of the investment groups they approached was called the Capital Group. 
And there was a guy there named Jim Martin who was working there, and that might have already spelled doom for the new company before things could even get started, because it turned out Jim Martin had previously worked for Fairchild, but he had been fired. In fact, he had been fired by a certain Jerry Sanders. This has me imagining a scene in which Sanders, looking for investment capital for Gifford's company idea, walks into the office of a guy he had once fired at his old company in the past. But Jim Martin was also good friends with Jack Gifford, and so he worked with his colleagues at the Capital Group to provide an initial investment in the new company. And this new company's name would be Advanced Micro Devices, or AMD, and it incorporated on May 1st, 1969. So from Shockley's Semiconductor Lab, we can trace a path not just to Fairchild, but also Intel and AMD. And while AMD would become known as a competitor with Intel, things would start off a little bit differently. AMD was originally in Santa Clara, California, but quickly moved to Sunnyvale just a few months after the founders formed the company. Their new digs had 15,000 square feet of space and was valued at half a million dollars at the time. While the engineers at Intel were working on creating new microchips, AMD's first order of business was taking products from Fairchild and then redesigning them, essentially optimizing them and tweaking them. This would be something that AMD would get really good at. Not necessarily building its own products from the ground up, but taking other products and then Uh, optimizing them. These were mostly in the form of integrated circuits. And while AMD started in the business of building logic chips, they weren't yet creating CPUs themselves. Uh, The CPU is the primary logic chip in a computer. Now, to be fair, AMD's founding was right around the time when the concept of a CPU on a single chip was just starting to coalesce. Because This was still the very early days of computers. Earlier, the logic center of a computer consisted of several different logic chips, all wired together, and each logic chip itself was an integrated circuit that would fit into the larger circuit of the central processing unit, which would, as I mentioned, consist of several chips. But many people, independently or depending upon whom you believe not so independently, proposed that with the right architecture, you could build all the necessary logic components onto a single chip in an integrated circuit and create what was effectively a computer on a chip. Now, I said depending upon whom you believe because there are disputes regarding who first came up with the notion of a computer on a chip. There's some arguments about who it was that first proposed this, and there's the possibility that people responsible for building what would become the first true single-chip CPU may have learned about the possibility from another person who had already proposed it and had worked for them in a previous company, but unfolding all of that would require an episode all by itself. Uh, The episode about how the CPU on a chip came to be would be a pretty dramatic story that I don't have time to tell today. So, single-chip CPUs were not yet realized when AMD first started, and it makes sense that they began with basic logic chips, what we would consider components of an overall central processing unit today. They were chips like an arithmetic uh, logic unit and a control unit. So these are all elements that are now integrated into the CPUs we have today, but in the old days, they were all discrete components that you would have to 
you know, put together in your circuits. Their first really successful component came out a year after the founding of the company, so in 1970, and it was called the AM2501 Logic Counter. It was the industry's first binary slash hexadecimal up-down counter. So what the heck does that mean? I could just say that and move on, but I feel like without describing what binary hexadecimal counters do, it's meaningless, right? I could have said any gobbledygook and it would have been just as fine. So binary, of course, refers to the two-state basic unit of logic in computers. And we represent binary as being either a zero or a one. So you can think of it like a light switch, right? It's either off or it's on. It can't be both. It, can't, it has to be one or the other. And if you use strings of binary digits series of zeros and ones, you can represent all sorts of stuff from other numbers to letters to pictures of cats and so on. But it takes a lot of binary numbers to represent this stuff. And as you work with larger digital systems, you start to discover that working with binary becomes unwieldy. It's very hard to read or write blocks of binary code. And it's super hard to do so without introducing errors in the process. So, one way to deal with this is to group sets of four bits together. A bit is that basic unit of information, a zero or a one. So you can group these four bits together into another type of numbering system called hexadecimal numbers. Now, hexadecimal numbers is a base 16 numbering system. We use a base 10 numbering system. We go from zero to nine. And when we get past nine, you have 10, which is Again, you start back at zero, and then you have a one in the tens column for that number. But you go all the way back up to 19, and then you start over again, and now you have a two in that tens column. Well, hexadecimal is base 16, and that presents a challenge, right? Because if you're talking about base 16, you would normally start with zero, then you'd work up to 15. But how could you tell a 10 apart from the two di digits of one and zero that are side by side, right? If you can have a zero and a one in your numbering system and you can have a 10 in your numbering system and it's base 16, you can't tell the difference between a 10 and a one zero. So anything 10 or higher, now 10 to 15, would be confusing. And so for that reason, the digits 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 are in hexadecimal represented by letters, A, B, C, D, E, and F. So hexadecimal digits include 0 through 9 and A through F to represent binary or decimal numbers. Now, remember, hexadecimal numbers represent groups of four bits. A 0 in hexadecimal represents a binary string of four zeros in a row. And F in hexadecimal represents the four-bit string of 1111 because that actually represents the, the decimal number of 15. Um, you have uh, – you essentially say 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 8. Uh, that's how those different digit spots represent numbers. So to convert binary into hexadecimal, you would first take your big block of binary code and you would divide it into four-bit strings – then you would convert each four-bit string into the hexadecimal digit that represents that four-bit string. And you have a slightly simpler way of representing all the information. 
So AMD's first successful logic counter could do this task, and it became an important early component in many computer systems of the early 1970s. At the time of the AM2501 release, AMD had 53 employees. The company had established a wafer fabrication lab that could make 2-inch silicon wafers, and then uh, AMD would then use that as a platform for integrated circuits. And uh, the company was able to build circuits with elements on the 7 micrometer scale, or if you're old school, the 7 micron scale. A micrometer is one millionth of a meter. And today, microprocessors are built on the nanometer scale. That's one billionth of a meter. But in 1970, the micrometer scale was pretty darn impressive. In 1971, an AMD engineer named Sven Simonson led a group that designed another successful AMD product, and it was a chip that handled multiplication. It was called the AM2505. And it was, at the time, the industry's fastest multiplier chip. So the company was making a name for itself, building out these components that were outperforming other manufacturers that were working in the same industry. 1971 was also the year that AMD began to produce random access memory or RAM chips. And anyone who has gone shopping for computers has seen stuff about RAM. And I think most people realize it has something to do with computer performance but they might not know what it actually is all about. Well, first, you know, it's, it is memory, and memory's purpose is to keep a record of information. And there are different types of memory. This is true for people, and it's true for computers. So in computers, you have read-only memory, or ROM. You have random access memory, or RAM. And then you have auxiliary memory, which we usually refer to as storage. So... Auxiliary memory is where information lives when you've saved it. It's, in a way, sort of analogous to our long-term memory as human beings. But retrieving information from auxiliary memory takes a little bit of time. A computer has to go through the directory, find the information, retrieve it, and pull it up into the, the current moment. So if a computer had to refer to its auxiliary memory every time you wanted to run any sort of process related to that data it would feel like it was really taking forever. Random access memory is more sort of like our, our short-term memory. It's used to temporarily store information for the purposes of working with that info and making it faster. So rather than having to pull up the data from storage every time, the computer can store it temporarily in RAM. So the more RAM you have, the more information you can hold in this working memory. And that's why people tend to talk about having more RAM with your computer, makes your computer faster. What it's really doing is it's cutting down on how frequently your machine needs to consult its auxiliary memory. So if it can load more data into RAM, then it doesn't need to pop back into the library as frequently. RAM is often referred to as volatile memory, and it will only hold information as long as a computer is powered on. Upon losing power, traditional RAM relinquishes all that information. Read-only memory, by the way, or ROM, has pre-programmed information that's hard-coded onto the memory itself and generally is used to hold stuff like basic sets of instructions that the computer has to follow in order to boot up and get the system ready for use. All right, so that's RAM in a nutshell. I'll have to do a full episode about it later on to talk about the nitty-gritty stuff. And when we come back, I'll talk more about the early days of AMD. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, 
Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team 
always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. In 1972, AMD made the move to become a publicly traded company and held an IPO. Shares of AMD were valued at $15 each. The following year, it would open its first overseas manufacturing facility in Malaysia. So the company was expanding early on. And the company continued to manufacture components and grow. And that's pretty much what the company did for its first few years. Building logic chips, growing the company. And there's not really much to say about those years, apart from the fact that Sanders established himself as a bit of a flamboyant leader. He had already been seen as similar (laughs) in uh, Fairchild. And I read in an Ars Technica article that Francis Fran Barton, who was the chief financial officer at AMD in the late 90s, described Sanders as being part Indiana Jones, part Don Quixote. So that's pretty darn flamboyant. Now, uh, I do want to say that if I were to cover every single thing they ever put out, this would sound like a technical manual, and all the names are AM and then a bunch of numbers. That would become unmanageable right away. So I'm going to be skipping around a little bit. So by the spring of 1974, five years after the company had started, it had grown to just under 1,500 employees. AMD also reinvested in its manufacturing facilities, which is a necessary and critical part of the semiconductor business. Gordon Moore, you know, that guy who used to work at Fairchild and then became a co-founder of Intel, had famously made an observation back in 1965 that market demands would create the incentive for semiconductor companies to cram about twice as many components onto a square-inch silicon chip every two years or so. To meet that demand, 
Companies like Intel and AMD had to frequently overhaul not just the design of the chips, but the manufacturing process itself to create ever smaller transistors and pathways in order to stay true to that observation. Today, we call that observation Moore's Law, though these days we tend to think of it in terms of computing power and how computing power tends to double in strength every 18 to 24 months, as if it were magically doing that on its own. But Gordon Moore's point was that there was going to be a continuing demand from the marketplace for ever smaller components on microchips, which in turn also means that the microchips are able to do a lot more stuff because you've crammed more components onto it than the previous generation's microchips. And that as long as that market demand is there, then it would create the incentive to continue investing in that. So his was a market-driven vision. We tend to think of it as some sort of innovation law, but that mean, that's sort of like getting it backwards. Anyway, even in those days, AMD and Intel were competing. While Intel had started to develop computers on a chip in the early 1970s, releasing the Intel 4004 microprocessor back in 1971, it was also still in the business of building logic chips. And AMD sales for certain products were starting to catch up to, and in some cases, exceed Intel sales. So things were looking good for AMD. Jerry Sanders initiated a special program called Run for the Sun in 1975. This was a, a sales target for AMD. And the sales target was to make $93 million in sales that year. So why $93 million? Well, that would be $1 for every mile between the Earth and the Sun. And Sanders, again, had a certain flair for the dramatic. By the way, AMD would very nearly make that goal. They came up less than a million dollars short of that figure. Really impressive considering where they were. But I guess that means they didn't burn up on the surface of the sun. So that's good. Also in 1975, AMD did something pretty clever. Engineers took a very close look at a photograph of the die that Intel was using to build the company's 8088-bit microprocessor. So the microprocessor was called the 8080, and it was an 8-bit microprocessor. AMD looks at this, their engineers, they start to set out to reverse engineer Intel's work and make their own version of Intel's chip. So AMD's version would ultimately be called the AM9080, now, you might imagine that Intel was pretty head up about the fact that AMD had managed to figure out their secret sauce and then reverse engineer it to create their own variation of Intel's chip. But what actually unfolded was one of the more unusual business deals in tech history. In 1976, Intel and AMD entered into a cross-licensing agreement between the two companies. This initial agreement had to do with microcode, which is the code on top of a CPU that allows it to interact with a computer's other systems. And it gets pretty complicated, both technologically and legally. But an interesting thing to point out is that AMD and Intel, without, while they were still being fiercely competitive against each other and even engaging in lengthy and acrimonious le legal battles over their history, would continue to renew patent licensing agreements every decade because they were set to expire after 10 years. Well, in 1977, AMD and the German company Siemens entered into a joint venture to develop microcomputers. Uh, those are the type of computers we think of as desktop personal computers, in other words. Now, together, the companies formed a third 
entity called Advanced Microcomputers, and they established it both in the United States and in Germany. The main focus was to create computers that had a Zilog Z8000 microprocessor as the CPU. Uh, AMD was actually a second source for those type of chips. Now, that means that AMD had acquired a license from Zilog to produce Zilog's chips using Zilog's designs. So it's, it's as if you, let's say that you make a soft drink like Coca-Cola, and then Pepsi comes up to you and says, hey, we can't meet our demand. Uh, we have way more demand for our product than we can personally manufacture. So we are willing to strike a deal with you where you can make our stuff and sell it because the demand is there and you'll pay us a, a little licensing fee so that we get some money out of this. But that way we meet our customer demands and you make money and I make money. And that's sort of the idea that AMD had with Zilog where they were allowed to produce Zilog chips in return for this licensing fee. Now, before long, it became clear that Siemens and AMD had very different visions of where advanced microcomputers should go. And in 1979, just two years after entering into the joint venture, AMD would buy out Siemens' stake in that company. And AMD would continue to operate advanced microcomputers for a short while, but would choose to shut it down in 1981 because of another big opportunity. That opportunity came straight from their old nemesis Intel. In the 1970s, Intel had developed the 8086 microprocessor, and by extension, what has become known as the x86 instruction set architecture. This was a significant advancement over Intel's 8-bit processor, the 8080. That was the one that AMD had managed to reverse engineer and effectively clone a couple of years earlier. The 8086 microprocessor was a top candidate when another tech giant, IBM, was looking at microprocessors that might power its upcoming IBM PC. But Big Blue had a concern. IBM was worried that the demand for the IBM PC would quickly exceed Intel's manufacturing capacity, and that would result in shortages and delays in the supply chain, which in turn would make IBM's customers unhappy. Plus, if something should happen to Intel, then IBM would be up the creek as far as its computers were concerned. They'd have no supplier for their microprocessors. So IBM essentially told Intel, hey, we can make a deal, and it's going to be a big one. It'll make you lots of money. But you have to figure out how to license your technology to another manufacturer so that we can get the number of chips we need to meet our demand. Intel, not wanting to lose this valuable contract, agreed to IBM's terms and then turned to AMD. Thus, Intel and AMD entered into an agreement. Intel would supply AMD with the proprietary information about how the 8086, and by extension the x86 instruction set architecture worked, and AMD would start producing some of Intel's chips, and the two competitors joined forces to meet IBM's expectations. Now, in another episode, I talked about how IBM's decision to rely heavily on off-the-shelf components would lead to its eventual departure from the personal computer market because other companies would replicate IBM computers by getting hold of those same basic components and putting them together themselves. 
And part of that had to do with Intel and AMD not having to sign any sort of exclusive deal with IBM. So not only did these companies make a killing off IBM, they also benefited from all the IBM-compatible manufacturers that grew out of that era. And both Intel and AMD were raking in the cash. Intel would continue to supply AMD with database tapes for the design of the 8086, the 8186, and the 8286, which gave AMD the ability to make clones of those chips, plus the variants like the 8088 and the 8188. Those were variations on the x86 architecture. Now, AMD did not put all its eggs in the Intel second source basket. It was also developing chips for RISC computers. RISC, or R-I-S-C, stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. It relies on a processor design that follows a simplified set of instructions, and it's an alternative to Complex Instruction Set Computing, or CISC. The idea of RISC computers is that they do fewer things, but the things they do, they can do much more quickly and efficiently. The PowerPC microprocessor architecture, which was a joint venture between Apple, IBM, and Motorola, relied on RISC chips. The AMD line was known as the AM29000 series. So... In 1983, AMD ruffled the feathers over at Intel a little bit. The company produced its AM286 licensed clone of Intel's 8286. And typically, we just refer to these as 286 microchips or 286 computers. And it's really saying that the computer, which was an IBM-compatible computer, had inside of it an 8286 microchip or AMD's version. So... The fact that AMD was making this chip, totally fine. That was completely covered under this licensing agreement between the two companies. That was not the problem. AMD was doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing. It was taking Intel's chips and it was making them and uh, making them available to these uh, manufacturers that are making the actual computers. The two chips were identical from an architectural perspective, but AMD's version had a higher clock speed. Intel's clock speed for the 286 topped out at 12.5 megahertz, and AMD's could go up as high as 20 megahertz. So that raises the question, what are clock speeds? So let me answer that very quickly. Uh, with a processor, the clock tells us essentially how many internal operations the microprocessor can perform each second. And we describe this in cycles per second, and a hertz is one cycle per second. So Intel's 286 microprocessor could complete 12.5 million cycles every second. But AMD's could do 20 million cycles every second. So AMD's chip was able to process information at a faster rate than Intel's, which led the industry to say that AMD was effectively producing better Intel chips than Intel could. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over so well at Intel. Intel did not want to see companies going with their competitor's version of their own chip instead of them. But things were going great at AMD. The company was named one of the Fortune 500 companies in 1985. Uh, Tony Holbrook would become the president of the company in 1986, and Jerry Sanders would turn into the uh, the CEO. Not turn into. He was just, that was his role. He didn't 
have a magic fairy come down and grant him the wish of becoming CEO, though some days I think that's how business works. Also in 1986, Intel terminated their contract with AMD, which was problematic as the second source deal between the two companies that uh, that had started back in 1982 and it was supposed to last 10 years. But if I'm doing my math correctly, 1982 plus 10 does not equal 1986. So I guess Intel wasn't too happy with getting a reputation for making the second best Intel microchip in the industry. And the company was gearing up with its 386 update. So Intel said no dice to AMD. And AMD sued, alleging that Intel had breached the contract. But these legal battles take time. This particular legal battle would take almost 10 years. And in the meantime, AMD had to figure out what else it had to do. That what else would end up being a two-pronged attack. One would be to develop their own CPUs, actually designing their own microchip architecture from the ground up based on the x86 instruction set. The other prong of this two-pronged attack was to look at what Intel was doing and reverse engineer it again, and maybe even do it better than Intel could again. So in our next episode, we'll talk about this two-pronged attack and what AMD did and how it continued to evolve and what's going on with the company today. But this is time to wrap up this particular episode. So thank you so much for the suggestion. We greatly appreciate it. If any of you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff episodes, you can write me. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can drop on by the, the website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You're going to find an archive of all of our shows there, plus links to the social uh, uh, presence of Tech Stuff and to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again about AMD really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.